Did you know that one in every three Americans suffer from a sort of anxiety disorder? One in three Americans struggle with anxiety. 62% of freshmen in college admitted to feeling overwhelmingly anxious about life. 62% of college freshmen. Anxiety has been described as the emotion of our time. We are living in a world that is changing and growing and shifting faster and faster. We're creating devices and technology that we are not sure we can control in the years to come. And at any given moment, we have the manpower to destroy a civilization within a second. And everything we've lived for and done can come down in a pile of ashes. There is great uncertainty about where we're going, about what's around the corner, And it makes sense then that Soren Kierkegaard said that the cost of being in this world is anxiety. Simply the cost of being in the world. We are anxious creatures. Some struggle much more heavily with anxiety. But on a whole, we can all say that we all share the common disorder and dilemma of anxiety. It's something all humans have in common. A separation, an angst, a knowing that we aren't where we're supposed to be or we've lost something that we're supposed to have. A lot of psychologists point to the fact that a child experiences that when they're born. They're in the womb where everything they need is there. They're suddenly ripped out into this scary world where there's cold and there's hunger and there's pain and there are wet diapers and there's this no warm arms to hold me 24-7. And that at that moment, because we don't have the words or the reason to articulate what's going on, anxiety sets in deep within our being. That's what psychologists say, and there's a lot of interesting merit to that. But a theologian would say, yes, and we were born and created in the image of God. We were created in the image of God, but we are a far cry from that. As we have been severed from this image of God We don't relate to God the way we were made to. There's a distance. There's confusion and darkness and sin. All of these things combine to create an anxious human being. And to make matters worse, you have the winds of culture and of opinions and of people blowing this way and that way, telling you to be this or to do that. You're not doing it the right way. That's not what's cool anymore. That is politically incorrect. You need to understand the way things work now. Anxiety abounds when people tell us we're doing it wrong and that there's always a shifting way of doing things the right way. So what we'd experience within ourselves is a sense of inadequacy. It's this general sense of helplessness, of unease. I'm not enough. And so we're going to see a picture of the sea. And the sea is a perfect setting for anxiety. The sea of helplessness. Much literature, many poets, and the scriptures themselves use the sea as the, as the theater, as the stage, as the metaphor for helplessness. Something larger than yourself that could swallow you in a wave. Something you cannot control. This is the setting for anxiety. 
what we're going to do is we're going to be led by Jesus through the unanxious way. We're looking at the way in the Gospel of Mark. He likes this word, the way, and we're going to see it come in full force next week, so be ready. But he's showing us the way that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. He's going to be revealed to all flesh. And Isaiah gave us that way and showed us it leads us to the new heavens and the new earth. And then Mark opens the story of Jesus, not with his birth, not with a lot of fanfare and angels singing. And no, he just goes straight to Isaiah's text and says, prepare the way of the Lord. Here it is. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus then goes and begins inviting others to join him on the way. So we saw, um, it's like Winnie the Pooh. And we may not always know how to talk about this way we're on. And we don't always know exactly where it's going, every day at least. But we do know that Jesus is our North Pole. And we are on the expedition to the North Pole, as the Winnie the Pooh story goes. Then we looked at the uncrowded way. That this way that Jesus wants to lead us on is not just the thing we walk on, but it's the way we walk. And he wants us not to follow the way the Pharisees, which always drew a crowd and sought to change them through their teachings and ways. But Jesus sought relationship and he wanted to get to know people and rip the roof off of religiosity and say, here is what I'm offering you, the uncrowded way. And then last week, um, we looked at the unhurried way in Jesus's parables about the sower and the seed and three stories about seed becoming plants. Friends, God is not in a hurry. Just as a farmer cannot rush the progress of growth, Jesus is throwing the seed and he's willing to wait for us to grow and bear fruit. It's an unhurried way. As long as we're walking with Christ, we will get where we need to go. And we need to be patient with each other, especially as we go in and out of seasons. But now we're going to see tonight the unanxious way. Because anxiety is the way of the world, but Christ wants to take us on the path without anxiety. He wants to create among us non-anxious leaders. We have a lot of anxious leaders in the world, and they lead out of their anxiety. And we're going to see a couple examples in our text. But Christ wants non-anxious leaders in his world. And he's going to train his disciples and us by extension by taking them through a pattern. He's going to take them on the boat, then on the land. On the boat, on the land. This pattern is how he's going to give us non-anxious leaders. So, the unanxious way. It's withdrawing from society on a boat and it's returning to society on land. So, in verse 20, 35 of chapter 4, Mark 4, verse 35, Jesus had just finished his last story, which we looked at last week, and it says, On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. For the first time, we see Jesus and his disciples get on a boat. 
In verse 36, and leaving the crowd. You see here, this is a pattern of withdrawal. There was great demand on Jesus. And as he was telling the stories, the crowds are pressing in on him so that we saw in chapter four that Jesus got on a boat so that there would be a little bit of a gap between him and the pressing crowds so that he could share with them. And now they're withdrawing from the crowd. Jesus takes his disciples onto a boat. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. But whenever you see the sea in scripture, it's rarely a good result. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But while the disciples are bailing water out of the boat, while they're screaming and shouting at each other over the winds, Jesus was asleep. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And as if it's just another morning or just another way I wake up, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the theater of anxiety. First, you're in an unstable place. It moves. It bobs. And then when the winds blow and the opinions are shouted and people tell you, no, no, not that way, this way. Don't be that, be this. It begins to toss you to and fro. And then the waters, which are already unstable, begin to grow really unstable. And now you don't have footing. There's no concreteness to the sea, nor are there walls or borders or boundaries to find your bearings. You are at the mercy of what is moving and you go along with the ride. And there's a sense, even among these fishermen who know how to work boats and who know the Sea of Galilee, there's a sense of helplessness. We can't do this. We are at our wit's end. One of the things Jesus will do with us in order to teach us to be non-anxious people is he will actually take us to the sea of anxiety and cause us to look at it. Jesus, if you'll notice, is not about helping his disciples avoid their anxieties. He actually takes them to face the monster itself. And so that they're there on the boat and they must come to the last resort they have. Wake up, Jesus. Because you and I are so slow to wake Jesus up. Like, oh, he's so timid and mild like that. Let's figure this out another way. 
Because in truth, we know and we fear that, yes, on one hand, we love Jesus and we love God and we know we desire what he wants for us. Yet, on the other hand, we don't really want him to do everything he wants to do because then we might have to surrender or then we might have to change. We want him to be our king, but we don't want to follow his rules. And I have a feeling that when we are in the throes of our oceans and our seas, it's very tempting to let Jesus, we'll ride this out and keep him asleep. Because who knows what will happen if he's awake. He might change everything. He might make us go all the way to the other side of the lake. We want to get back to shore. We just want to be safe. He might say, no, we're going to keep going. Don't wake him up. We don't like what he has to say. But by taking them to the sea, by the withdrawing from society and from the crowds and being put in this place where all they have is Jesus on the boat, they're forced to reckon with his power. And God will take us through these seasons of withdrawal. He will throw us in the middle of the sea so that we have no other options, but we must be forced to awake the sleeping power within us. Have you ever considered that Jesus on the boat is Jesus in you? He is in us. The power of God is in us, the Bible tells us. And yet we live like God is over there, up there, and there's nothing going on here, and I'm helpless. We feel helpless. But the truth is, Jesus is in our boat. It's we who are trying to make sure the waves are simply rocking him into a dormant position. Yeah, I got Jesus in my life. I'm not like a crazy Christian kind of person. I I know God's in me and that's all I need. I can kind of do what I want and we're all good because God's here. Sleeping, a sleeping God. We need to let Jesus wake up within us. It's not, it's up to us. It's up to us. Do Do you really want his power in your life? You'll see. And it's the moment that, no, most people don't want the power of Jesus in their life. But I want to point out also, um, as, as they're withdrawing, they're on the boat. It's, it's through these withdrawals that we have to face our anxieties. We have to face our fears because Jesus is interested not in tormenting you. It's not like, well, since you're not going to hell, let me give it to you now. That's a bad view of what he's up to. Rather, it's this very important phrase in verse 35. Jesus says to them, let us go across to the other side. Non-anxious leaders are not the ones who stay on one side of the lake. Non-anxious leaders go to the other side and then they can feed society because they've faced their anxiety. Going to the other side is where Jesus invites us to face our anxiety so that we can then on the other side feed the society. But non-anxious leaders are going to have a very different way of doing things. They're going to keep on saying, you cannot do that. No, you got to be like this. But Jesus is trying to make non-anxious leaders lead in a much more powerful way. So let's go to the other side. That's what he's trying to 
he's asking us to have seasons where we withdraw. It might be even moments in your day, the morning withdrawal, or it's a season withdrawal where you're, you're, you're going with him on the boat and he's going to heal you of your anxiety. But now, are you willing to wake him up? Well, in chapter 5, they come to the other side of the sea. So they make it, thank you, Jesus, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, when Jesus gets off the boat, immediately a man races up to him. He's a man who's been living among the tombs. He's a man who's been cutting himself. He's an outcast of society because he's demon-possessed. And Jesus asks for his name, and he says, Legion, for we are many. So he's possessed by many demons. And then Jesus casts the demons out of the man, and the demons go into a herd of pigs who are rushed off the side and into the sea, and they drown. And now the shepherds, the herders, verse 14, 514, the herdsmen fled and told it, in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was, what had happened. They're like, ah, our pigs are all destroyed. We've lost everything. We're bankrupt. Come see. And now in verse 15, Jesus, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now, the disciples were afraid on the boat. They saw the power of Jesus, right? And it said that they were still, it said, uh, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? Now the villagers come out and they're filled with great fear as they see this insane man is now sane in his right mind, clothed at the feet of Jesus. What is going on here? Now in verse 17, Oh, verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. So they're in awe about the demon-possessed man. They're terrified. But then they hear about the pigs and how they're gone. And in verse 17, it says that they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Okay, cool. Jesus, yeah, you're going to make crazy people sane. You're going to bring healing and you're going to help people and fix people. Great. Please, by all means. We were trying to shackle that guy for years. So glad you took care of him. Tell us your secret, please. But do not hurt our pigs. Don't mess with what we've got going on here. Because we have a nice business going and you wrecked it. Please go. This is why we hesitate to wake Jesus on the boat is because we fear that the power that will change us will wreck something else that we hold too dear. And when we love the pigs more than growing in him, we will ask him to leave or we will just rock him to sleep. Another example, in chapter 6, he comes to his hometown. In verse 1, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, now you have to imagine, if this is Jesus' hometown, some of these people babysat him, changed his diapers, saw him pick his nose and put it under the school desk. He saw all kinds of things, right? So they hear him teaching, like, what? So they start asking, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You're just one of us, kid. Who do you think you are? Now, there's a sense of jealousy there, isn't there? You're in a small town. You're still there. Someone else has moved off. They have all this so-called success, and they come back. Oh, you're back. Because you're a reminder of the fact that we haven't crossed the other side yet. We haven't been willing to get on the boat and wake Jesus up. That's part of the attitude of the Nazareth crowd here. So they took offense at him. And in verse 4, Jesus said to them, Look, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. He could not do a mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He couldn't do any mighty works there because of their unbelief. Because of their resistance to him. Their, ugh. And so even though they have heard the rumors of what Jesus has been doing around Galilee, and he comes and they hear the power in his teaching, they look at him and say, just don't do that here. Just don't do that here. Their unbelief. And so we see two instances where it's really tempting to keep Jesus asleep on the boat. But he will take us to the sea so that we get to a place where we have to wake his power up in our lives. We have to say, take the pigs. Mess around with Nazareth. Whatever you want to do. We cannot stand the anxiety of the sea right now. So he cures us by taking us to where we feel helpless. Now, um, it continues. We see King Herod is an anxious leader. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of what Jesus was doing, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, no, 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 no. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I'm sure of it. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay. Herod's an interesting character. His dad was an anxious leader. His dad was Herod the Great, who you might remember put to death many boys in Bethlehem because he was paranoid about Jesus, the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. Caesar himself crowned me king of the Jews. There cannot be another king of the Jews. So kill every boy in Bethlehem. There cannot be another one. Okay. And he killed many of his family members, including his beloved wife, because he was always suspicious that they were trying to conspire for his assassination. Herod the Great was a very anxious leader, and he made some very bad and poor decisions because of his anxiety. But Jesus wants non-anxious leaders. Herod the Great, or yeah, Herod the Great didn't like the boat being rocked. And now Herod the Great's son, this Herod, 
also doesn't like his boat being rocked. So, when he takes his brother's wife as his own, a little bit of drama there, John the Baptist says, oh no, you don't. And Herod, the king in charge, anxiety flutters in his heart. No, no one talks to the king like that. So, it was Herodias who pressures him to put John in prison. John didn't want to because he, he revered John as much as he didn't like him. But there was an opportunity on Herod's birthday in verse 21. And he gave this great banquet. Look how great I am, my birthday, come celebrate me. You know, using his power and his wealth and his leadership to flaunt that. But then he gets himself in trouble because he gets himself in a situation where Herodias' daughter comes in and dances for them. And he's so impressed, he promises her whatever she asks for. She asks for John the Baptist's head. And now Herod's like, oh, man. He puts himself in this position because he's an anxious leader. He always needs to please people. He cares about his image. So John the Baptist is beheaded. And Herod was sorry for that. So there you see an anxious leader and all the mistakes he's led into because he has never crossed to the other side. He has never faced his anxiety. He was never with Jesus on a boat. It was all up to him mustering his own ability. Okay, and now we come to the climax of this first part. In verse 30, now we talked about boat and land. Jesus takes the disciples on a boat. They withdraw. Now they're on land. They're returning to the crowd. They're returning to society. And now they're ready. They're ready to be used by Jesus. So in chapter 6, verse 30, you know this one. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus had just sent the 12 out to do these mighty deeds. So they've already been serving. And now they all regather. They all come back together. And in verse 31, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I want you to understand the humor here. Jesus had just sent his disciples out and given them power over demons and to teach. And they did these wonderful things. And they come back and they're excited. You sent us into society and we saw these amazing things, right? Boat, land. Now he's like, okay, let's withdraw again. Boat. You guys need some rest. It's a rather, this time it's a rather easy trip. Nothing happens. But the humor here is that while they're on the boat to get to the other side, the crowd races around the rim of the lake and beats him there. Here's the hard thing about trusting Jesus when he withdraws us onto the boat is that it's not the most efficient way from point A to point B. Crossing the other side of the sea takes time and sometimes you hit a storm and sometimes you get tossed off course a little bit the people who ran around the rim got there faster but they're also not facing their anxiety and learning to trust jesus see this is why we don't like the boat 
It's scary. It takes too long. Let's just take the Nicenic route around the shoreline. Well, now they come back to land. And guess what? Expect them to be ready to use the power they've received from Christ on the boat on land. So in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, look, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Because, I mean, dancing with the stars is on soon, Jesus. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. I wonder how much fun Jesus had with watching their reactions as he threw it back at them. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's 200 days wages is what 200 denarii is. That's, you know, like two thirds ish of your annual income. And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? go and see. And they went, and they, when they had found out, they said, <laughs> you, won't give, you won't believe this, five loaves and two fish. What are you going to do with that? But Jesus doesn't answer them. He just says, it just says that he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. And you could just see James and John and Peter huddling and saying, do you think he misheard us? Do you think he thought we meant five thousand loaves and two thousand fish? He didn't take us literally. We said five and two. You said five and two. Right? Did you make sure it was literally five and two? Are you sure? And they're what's he doing, making him sit down? And in verse forty-one, taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to who? The disciples to set before the people. And Jesus could have, I'm sure, just started flinging them out like T-shirts at a concert or something. <laughs> or himself gone and, and touched and talked to everybody. But he wanted the disciples to be the ones to take it from him to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, the baskets, 12 left over, they're, they're supposed to be somewhat like my height-ish, or at least to my shoulder, large baskets. And the 12 of these were left over. Jesus not only stretched it to be enough, like, no seconds, people, we don't have very much here. He had plenty, and everyone was satisfied, and they had, well, leftovers, anyone wants to carry a basket. This is abundance. This is abundance. And what Jesus is doing with the disciples is he's making them non-anxious leaders by taking them to the sea on the boat and then making them return on land to the crowd. And when they are in the midst of a moment like this, notice how Jesus doesn't panic about the people. He recognizes that there is plenty in my father's kingdom to share with everybody. Now, the disciples are still learning, so they're a little bit eked out about this. They're like, ah, we can't do this. But Jesus is using them and teaching them, look, give me what you have and I will make it enough. I will make it enough. I'm convinced most of our anxiety stems from the fact that we believe we're not enough. We're helpless and we're insufficient. 
Jesus wants us to know that when we wake him up on the boat, he will then, through us on land, make us more than enough. Twelve times more than enough. You see? Okay, so the first boat scene leads us to this feeding of the 5,000. Now there's another boat scene. It's time for another major withdrawal. And guess what? Another major lesson on the sea. And then guess where it's going to culminate? With the feeding of the 4,000. So let's watch the next stage of withdrawal. Now, hold on. Before we look at it, and by the way, it will be in chapter... Well, it's actually the next verse, verse 45, 645. Um, but before we look at that, I want you to consider what kind of a storm did they face earlier and what are they going to face this time and how are they different? Because God will sometimes teach us different things as he withdraws us and then returns us. So, boat episode number two, 645. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. You're on land. You served. Time to withdraw. Let's go heal. Let's go. Let's go face our anxieties. Um, so they got into the boat to, and go before him to the other side. There you go again. It's the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, this is between 3 to 6 a.m., really early in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for They all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not... Now here's the mystery. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What? So apparently, if they would have understood the feeding of the 5,000, those leftover loaves, they wouldn't have been so alarmed that Jesus was walking on water? Okay, so in this second boat episode, we see Jesus is not on the boat this time. Because I fear that sometimes they're like, whoa, Jesus, your power, we're going to try this on our own this time. And notice they're rowing against the wind. It's not necessarily a storm, it's just strong wind, and they're making painful progress. So much so that Jesus sees them from his little prayer hill. And it's like, oh, it's about 4.30 in the morning. Look at them go. Isn't it true, though, that this is what anxiety can do to us? Is it, is it keeps us awake in those most inopportune moments? It's hard to shut down. It's hard to distrust. It's hard to just rest. And the disciples are doing everything they can to make this boat move forward. And somehow they're still in the midst of the sea. And Jesus, who just had a nice long time of prayer, casually comes down the hill, starts cruising across the water, and is about to pass them. So here's this guy who had a way late head start, and he's walking instead of sailing, and he is easily passing the disciples by. Remember, 
The boat is not the most efficient path, but it's where the lessons are learned. And now, but notice that they're terrified when they see Jesus. But then he gets on the boat and everything calms down. Just like before. Do you think he wanted the disciples to learn that in the first boat, sometimes we have anxious trouble, things that you can't help. You're just thrust into a situation and it's troubling and there's anxiety like, ah, help me. But then there are times when we are in anxious struggle. And that is something we bring upon ourselves. We get into the boat without Jesus. We think it's going to be by our power and by our rowing that we're going to get through the wind and get to the other side. But soon enough, we burn ourselves out. We can't sleep at 4.30 in the morning. We're worried about this and that. And, and, then, and then when Jesus shows up, we freak out because we can't even recognize him. Like, ah, what are you doing here? I had all this under control. We were going to make it. But he gets on the boat and I calm again. And through their anxious struggle, they learn we can only do this through Christ. And if we're in an anxious moment, not because of things that are thrust upon us, but because we are trying to make things happen, it's because you left Jesus on the hill. Bring him back on your boat. And then there will be great calm again. And you'll make it to the other side. I think then that's why it says that they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. I think what it's saying here is, look, had you learned about the feeding of the 5,000, you would have learned that in God, if we give what we have to Jesus, he will multiply that to be more than enough. But when we don't give what we have to Jesus, we are going to row and row and row and it will never be enough. And I fear that some of our anxiety comes from this concept that we have to make it happen. No, we don't. If we give what we have to Jesus, we will have leftovers. We'll be more than enough. All right. So they get off the boat. So they're back on land. And right away in chapter 7, they run into some opposition. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with, um, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, this has nothing to do with germs. They didn't really know about germs. The Pharisees just had this interesting technique. It's like, ew, there's like paganness on my hands. So they would wash their hands, and they would have, there's just a certain method where they didn't touch anything, and the water dripped off, and... The disciples weren't doing that. Maybe they were using hand sanitizer from Peter's man bag or something. And they're just getting right on the buffet line. And the Pharisee's like, oh, no, you don't. That's not how we do it. The winds of anxiety, right? Can you see the disciples suddenly like the burger halfway on the plate going, huh? Oh, no, we're doing it wrong. Jesus did it. Jesus then has to teach the Pharisees and his disciples, hey, hey, I don't care what goes into the mouth. It's what comes out of the heart that matters. 
But so when we begin to develop a non-anxious way of leading and living in life, we aren't going to worry about, oh, the buffet. Are we going to do the hand-washing thing right? Is this okay food? Is this, what are the Pharisees going to think? We don't live like that when you're non-anxious. On the unanxious way, Jesus gives you the liberty to say, yeah, you know what? You know what matters. It's what comes out of you that matters. So he teaches the Pharisees, or more for the disciples' benefit. But then we come up to chapter 8, and we climax again at the feeding of another multitude. So, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them will have, some of them have come from far away. Now, it might be easy to say, oh, disciples still don't get it. But I want you to notice that they have changed. They're no longer coming up to Jesus saying, hey, you know what? We got a show coming on. Can you get these people out of here? Instead, Jesus is the one initiating. Almost like the disciples like, oh, we know what he's going to do. Keep calm. Just wait. Maybe you'll forget. But his disciples answered him, same as last time now, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Well, this time they knew. See, they're a little bit prepared this time. They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, like last time. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthu. They're learning. Boat land, boat land. As they continue to go through this withdrawal, return, withdrawal, return, they're facing their own monsters in their own lives, and then they're returning to the land little by little, able to lead without anxiety, able to help people with what they need and where they're at. And they're learning now that if we give what we have to Jesus... We have more than enough. So our passage tonight ends with one more boat ride. And this brings it all into what Jesus wants from us tonight. Now in verse 11, the Pharisees again, they're like, eh, we want a sign. She's like, I'm not going to give you a sign. Just open your eyes. Um, but then in verse 14, they get into the boat. So if you look at 13, it says, He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Uh, Twelve. 
And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven? And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Oh, man. So this is our final boat scene, and it ties up all of the others with it. Because there, in the first boat scene, they learn to trust Jesus and his power. They go on to land and feed 5,000. In contrast, we see King Herod, who is an anxious leader. He does not walk the unanxious path. He does not trust God or Jesus. He does not think that Jesus can provide more and abundantly above all he can ask or think. So he's got to make it happen, even if he makes heads roll. In the other boat scene, they learn that you can't do it without Jesus. It's a struggle without him. So they bring him on the boat. Then they make it to the other side. Then on the land, they're able to feed the 4,000. And once again, they learn that, look, if we give what we have to Jesus, we are more than enough. Contrasting that is the Pharisees who say, oh, no, 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 no. It's about rules, making sure you do everything the right way. That is the way the Pharisees were leading religiously with anxiety. Oh, how dare you not keep the rules? You're going to let the world in here and we're all going to become pagans overnight. That's their attitude. Anxious leaders squibble and squabble and quibble over all those little things. (gasps) You listen to that music? Um, I mean, of course, there's some obviously limits to that, but it, 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 not everything has to be stamped with a Christian label to be kosher, pun intended. <laughs> but see, there's a lot of anxiety within the church and its purity. Because, look, all that is is trying to strain against the oars and say, we're going to get to the other side because we're so holy, we're so awesome, we're so different than everybody else. Um, But Jesus says, no, it's not that at all. It's just that you have me in the boat. That's the difference. So the disciples are learning to be non-anxious leaders. I hope we're learning as we're willing to withdraw with Jesus on the boat, then re-engage on land to be non-anxious leaders. But that's the warning he's giving them. He says, beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. Herod and the Pharisees are anxious leaders. Beware of that leaven. Anxiety is like leaven and it seeps through the whole mass and it bloats everything. And we got to make it happen. We got to be right. And we got, ah! stressful. Beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. They will never take the boat and face the storm. They will never look at their own monsters and say, Jesus, help me. That's not their way because they don't believe in the one who can feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Herod's got to rob everybody else to feed those people. And he'd only feed the people he likes at his own banquet, not the people in the wilderness. So beware withdraw, Jesus is telling them. Have you not yet understood? We've been withdrawing from the leaven of this world, the anxious leadership. And I I can't help but think, I read to you guys Psalm 127 before worship. When, when I hear him saying, beware the leaven, this, an, this anxiety, I can't help but think of Psalm 127 where he said, look, you who go to bed late and get up early, and it says, Toiling for anxious bread. Anxious bread. Jesus was not anxious when he fed the 5,000, the 4,000 with bread. 
And the disciples are learning not to be anxious. Anxious bread is the life that you have to make it happen. And then you get anxiety because you realize you can't make it happen. I'm just not adequate. I'm helpless. I don't have the resources. And the list goes on. And then you feel like you're drowning in the sea. Jesus wants to pull you up, sit in the boat with you, because it's not on us to make it happen. That's the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, anxious bread. That's their leaven. But in Christ, he's simply asking, bring me what you have. He asked him twice, what do you have? Five loaves, seven loaves. And it's more than enough. Twelve baskets, seven baskets. So what it's teaching us then is not to ask when we are on the sea or when we're on the land and when we're confronted with these large things, it's not up to you and I to ask, who am I? Who am I? How am I going to do this? Or the the anxious leader would say, who am I? Powerful. No, it's not up to us to ask the question, who am I? It's up to us to ask the question the disciples ask when they see Jesus calm the sea. They say, who then is this? I find myself on the boat asking, who am I? Come on, Peter, get a row. Let's see who we are. Let's get this thing to the other side. But when Jesus is awake in our lives, we find ourselves asking the better question, who then is he? Because in him, we are not helpless. In him, we are not um, inadequate. In him, we are more than enough. And he gives us more than enough. And we can make it. And we will. So Jesus wants to invite us tonight on the unanxious path. The unanxious way. He wants to raise up non-anxious leaders. But we must be willing to cross the lake with him. It is terrifying. But it's only then when we, it's only then that we'll actually wake Jesus up. It's only then that we'll see him walk on water. Lord, help us in the troubled seas.